Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So the uh, parade of horribles, as we've seen marching through the streets of Chicago and New York City and elsewhere, Descended upon the DNC in D.C. yesterday and got into uh, violent clashes with police. They want a ceasefire and they want a ceasefire now. And uh, here's what the uh, pro-Hamas protesters had to say. I mean, here's sort of a center cut example of uh, the sort of individual that was out fighting with police, trying to break in to the DNC. Yeah, the uh, anti-war protesters getting the worst of it from police in D.C. Imagine that. Well, I mean, it sounds, you know, when they stormed the White House, it was like an insurrection. They were on the walls or hanging on the White House fence, throwing objects at Secret Service agents, spitting on them, saying horrific things. And then you had the March for Israel and there were no arrests made. Not one. There was no everybody was on their, you know, not, not on their best behavior, but they were just following the rules and they're being civilized where these pro Hamas or pro Palestinian protesters, they're out of their minds. I mean, they've been stopping drive. They've been protesting in front of Jan Schakowsky's house and it hasn't gotten a lot of coverage uh, for the last four nights in a row. So a lot of protests, but it doesn't bother. They're allowed to protest. Yeah, but they're um, sometimes they're stopping traffic. They're tr- definitely creating traffic nightmares for people who try and work downtown to make a living for their family and who want to get home after work. Yeah, so well, the price of a free society, uh, the, 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 the logistics and the uh, inconvenience of it is separate and distinct from the substance of it. Uh, that, that's where I would that's, focus. Yeah. Uh, and, and then clashing with police. Now we get to it. The great irony of those pretending to wear the cloak of nonviolence engaged in, violence with police because yeah i mean police have a job to do you're not allowed to break into the dnc just ask g gordon liddy uh so uh the uh sort of individuals that comprise this uh, ceasefire now movement be interesting to know if any of those that were clashing with police yesterday are uh, federal employees maybe at the senior level in our national security agencies why do i ask well Uh, News reports say no fewer than 500 appointees and staff from 40 agencies, including the NSC and the Justice Department, Mm. 
-hmm. have sent uh, Mr. Temper, sent the big guy, President Biden, a letter demanding he call for a ceasefire and de-escalation. The letter stating, in part, Americans do not want the U.S. military to be drawn into another costly and senseless war in the Middle East. The uh, signatories on the letter, bravely anonymous. Uh, the same is, as the journal describes them, uh, tongue-in-cheek, of course, the same is true of more than a 1,000 employees for the U.S. Agency for International Development who have reportedly signed a similar letter. We believe that further catastrophic loss of human life can only be avoided if the United States government calls for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. And, of course, the uh, supporters of that statement are withholding their names because of, of course. concern for their personal safety and their professional job security. And according to Fox, it's close to 100 DOJ employees who signed that anonym or that email anonymously. Boy, just a, another example. There are countless, really, of um, enemies inside the perimeter, welcomed inside the perimeter. But then there well, were 100 we're, we, we do yeah. we, we do a funny thing in this country, yeah. just as an aside. We do a really funny thing in this country. We do a funny thing in the Republican Party. But uh, this is sort of both parties now as we're uh, unpacking all that has transpired and uh, our responses past and present. We subsidize our enemies. We bring our enemies inside our perimeter. We don't care when our enemies enter this country illegally. No. We don't know where they are. Uh, that's another, we'll get to that hearing, uh, the Committee on Homeland Security, where Ray and Mayorkas appeared yesterday to talk about this very topic. But uh, we subsidize our enemies. We welcome them in. We confuse our enemies with our friends. It's the most curious thing. We do this in a, a more pedestrian way in politics. The Republican Party does this all the time, political enemies. This is a little bit more serious. Now we're talking about enemies that seek to do Americans harm, state sponsors of terror enemies, for example. The state of Iran comes to mind and all of its proxies like Hamas and Hezbollah. Such a such an odd thing. Maybe there's a first principle we could get bipartisan support on. Now, it would need to be enforced because it's easy to say because the thing is so commonsensical. And then there are all the competing interests. Maybe we should take a step back. How, how about this? Can we get a uh, can I get a, an amen? Can I get an eye? Raise your hand. Um, any state or organization on the State Department, the United States shall not give them aid directly or indirectly. Is that something we can come together on? And sometimes I, I don't know whose team Joe Biden's on. I mean, they gave another $10 billion to Iran. I mean, is he being blackmailed or something? I mean, his son could be. We all know that. 312-642-5600, turnkey Depro pro answer line. Our text line is up and running, 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. We talked about that uh yeah, uh, yes, yesterday or the Jesus, other day yeah. with uh, Stephen Bucci from the Heritage Foundation. It is uh, the dumbest, uh, mo dumbest thing you could possibly do because the rumors were abounding, and and uh, one of the State Department spokeshumans said, "Oh, I don't, we don't respond to rumors on the internet." Okay, well, how about respond to news stories that now confirm a waiver has been granted mm -hmm. that gives Iran access to ten billion dollars more? What what? Who's bed are we sleeping in? What the heck's going on here? It's um. And then you have President Z curious. visiting, which we'll get to later. It's the whole thing. But here's one thing: so a hundred people, a hundred, 
which is not a small amount, were arrested at the Ogilvy Transportation Center. But they're mostly Jewish Americans. And you said you pointed this out. Well, here's two of them first before you set me straight, Dan. It felt critical to be here for the largest Midwestern Jewish action in solidarity with uh, Palestinians. There are many of us who feel this way. Many of us Jews who are allied with the Palestinian people and we want to help protect them. And you said something to me, Amy, this is not about religion. It's about politics. And that is so true that they. Of course. I mean, and Jesse Sharkey's up there with his mask on, you know, because if it saves one life, he got arrested too. And I just, I, I don't, I would never, I would never turn on my religion for politics. I just. Well, they're, they're not religious. Okay. They're, they're cultural. Jewish by birth. I mean, it's not, but the, the, uh, how, how many conversations do, do, do people need to hear about oppressor and oppressed, about solidarity and marginality, about politics uh, being their religion and government being their God before it resonates. How many more examples before you stop pretending to be surprised? Uh, I'm, uh, like the Groundhog Day again and again and again. W- what do they have to do to convince you? It's like uh, Hamas trying to convince you they're a terrorist organization. What, what, what is it that they're not communicating? No, it's been communicated now. I get it. Bill and Gl- uh I don't want to talk about she. We're focus, focus. This is not open mic Friday, so I don't. I will talk about she and San Francisco and all that later. Um, they, here's a good question, Dan and Amy on our text line: Will those protesters that were there yesterday outside the DNC be arrested, sent to jail? Why not compare it to January sixth? Well, it's, it's not a government building. The DNC is not a government building. It's no. not an official proceeding going on. I mean, the White yeah, House is and 11 people were arrested, by the, the way. The, 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 the point is this. Let's you know, be fact intensive on these things. So the, the comparison is when you engage in violent conflict with police, then you get arrested. So that, that's that's the point. So when you riot in front of the DNC or in front of and in the Capitol, then you get arrested. It's not an insurrection. Our country uh, wasn't uh, uh, on the precipice of falling to some unnamed people on January 6th. And you had another riot uh, yesterday in D.C., which is not terribly unusual. Mob action in big city America, not terribly unusual. And people need to be held accountable. So it's a law enforcement issue. That's what it is. Just like it was on January 6th, by the way. That's a comparison. We don't need to hyperbolize the hyperbolizers. Let's keep our feet on the ground. The, the these protesters, where they come from? They're being who busted they're, and, from everywhere. It's like what? the new Antifa, or maybe they are Antifa. And where they're where where they come from in terms of how do they get to that place? Where do Hamas terrorists come from? There's some really interesting videos that posted online. I mean, some of them are incredible. There's a one that was posted by a, a news outlet, Memory, M-E-M-R-I. It's a kindergarten graduation ceremony oh, I... in Gaza where kids, kindergartners, because mm-hmm. it's a kindergarten graduation ceremony, stage a mock military attack 
and hostage taking. They are in full battle gear and they walk up on stage with I, I assume they're mock weapons. I don't know. Maybe they're actual weapons. Right, I'm talking so about military rifles. Right. And and it's not Halloween. <laughs> and execute this uh, attack on a, on a safe house or just a house, I guess that would be the proxy for a house, with all sorts of uh, clearly military instruction because of the tactical way that they approach the house and then they... Uh, you know, do flat drop flashbangs, you know, mock flashbangs in and then breach the house and then uh, take the Israeli, uh, you know, put, put the put the person guarding uh, someone in the house on the ground and then they take the hostage. That's awful. The, um, the the sign the the one of the mini terrorists in training holds over each hostage reads Israel has fallen in Arabic and Hebrew. Kindergartens. Um, there's another video where Palestinian students, kids, grammar school kids, are interviewed about their views on Israel. These are, you know, like six, seven, eight-year-olds. Uh, I'll just read some of what they say. We have to make war to prove that we're stronger than the Jews. People love Palestine, and they, they're ready to die for Palestine. This is, you know, uh, caption. I want to fight against them, the Jews, and defeat them in war. This is a little girl who's yeah, like seven. Are, yeah. At school, they teach us that Alaska, the mosque, and all the and all of Palestine is ours. The Jews lie and say that's their temple. Uh, that that their temple is under the Alaska mosque. It was never there. Repeating the propaganda. I hate the Jews, little boy. Yes, they teach us that the Zionists are our enemy. hold more and we must fight them they teach us that the jews are terrorists hmm. at school they teach us about jews they teach us that they are bad people they killed our young they teach us in school that jews are fickle bad people i am ready to stab a jew and drive a car over them little boy little boy like their feet are dangling off i the will chairs. fight I will fight. I will ram a car into them. We have to constantly stab them, drive over them, and shoot them, the Jews. Stabbing and running over Jews brings dignity to the Palestinians. I'm going to run them over and stab them with knives. Right now, I'm prepared to be a suicide bomber. With Allah's help, uh, Allah's help, I will fight for ISIS, the Islamic State. And it just goes on like that. So the, the grooming and indoctrinating of the next generation of terrorists. And, I mean, so that, the, that is next level to sort of the grooming and indoctrination that occurs in K-12 through 12 schools that uh, produces people like you saw outside the DNC yesterday and, of course, the elite colleges to, as the coup de grace. But, I mean, do you, you want to understand what you're dealing with and how entrenched it is? Watch some of these videos. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, 
The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender, Signature Bank. Come join the murder, come fly with black, well, he'll give you freedom. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Oh, that uh, music means it's time to talk about Chicago, Chicago crime stories. Uh, by the way, uh, speaking of that, you know, that uh, song, of course, is uh, from Sons of Anarchy. Later in the show, we have uh, Vincent Vargas, who uh, was in uh, Mayans MC, which was a spinoff of uh, Sons of Anarchy. So I'm excited about that. And uh, he was Border Patrol. He served in the military's oh, yeah. uh, Border Patrol, too. It's going to be great. You're not going to so, miss it. It'll be fun to talk to him. Uh, all right. Updating a couple of the uh, high profile. Yes crime stories that we have brought you previously this uh, story we've talked about a couple of times now we've got a little bit more detail this is the flight attendant on a layover thought she'd do some window shopping on the mag mile and is now um, unresponsive Uh, the report is significant brain damage it doesn't look good for her after she was attacked in front of Burberry's. Yeah, it was a beautiful, warm, ironically warm day, Christmas shopping. People were doing that. And this guy, Dino, was standing behind her when it happened. And he is still just uh, a wreck by the destruction that he saw. There was a group in front of us. And the next thing we know, a gentleman came out of, or deranged man came out of nowhere with a about six-foot log and uh, projected it into this woman's side of her face. And the log came from, according to police, a Christmas display at the Starbucks across the street, and it was five to six feet long. And he's carrying this across Michigan Avenue, and then he said he lunged it so hard at the right side of her face that she was knocked out immediately. My friend uh, described it as an Olympian. Javelin throw. A javelin throw. Exactly, exactly. And there was women and children, grandmas pushing their babies in strollers all around while this is happening. Who the hell is going to want to come to Chicago or even shop downtown for, you know, the Christmas time on the Magnificent Mile after seeing that? After yeah. hearing about that. I mean, it's so graphic. And this guy, Bruce Diamond, 52, thank God he's not out on bond. The Safety Act, you know, he's still behind bars, but he's got like a Lakeview phone book thick file of prior arrests. Uh, he'd been uh, AWOL for more than two years from a misdemeanor battery case. He was accused of battering someone inside a store uh, on North Dearborn. Uh, before that, uh, between 89 and 97, he racked up 16 misdemeanor arrests. More recently, he had been in Ohio 
He had 21 convictions in the state of Ohio since 2011. In one of those cases, he likes to throw things at people. Oh, he does. He was accused of... He was accused of throwing a rock at a Cincinnati Fire Department ambulance in the city's government square. Mm-hmm. Um, repeat violent offenders. And again, as we mentioned previously with respect to this story, this happened basically just steps away from where a Northern Trust employee was killed when another repeat violent offender with a long history of attacking people and um, questions about his mental stability uh, ran up and punched this 49-year-old man from behind, uh, causing him to fall forward, hit his head. He died. And we had a fight last night in River North, two men fighting, uh, 11.30 last night. And the punch, fatal punch, he fell down, hit his head on a curb, dead. Uh, and we're worried about guns right now. And this and this also, too, why why did this black man attack this white woman out of the blue? He didn't know her from Adam. He just chose her, ran up and hit the white woman. Is that a hate crime? I know you don't like hate crimes, but it just, you know, that always gets lost and everything. Um, updating the uh, Beverly double carjacking story. Oh, boy. Uh, so two men charged with that... Uh, Carjacking. So these are the two that uh, induced the screaming that uh, went viral. The ring camera caught and and went viral. Mom and her 12-year-old daughter returning home from volleyball practice, and these guys descend upon them and then uh, point a gun in dad's face when daughter runs into the house. This is the Pettiford family. They've come public and talked about it. He comes downstairs, this guy points a gun in his face with the other guy saying, shoot him, shoot him, words to that effect, and thankfully that didn't happen. Uh, So these guys, uh, one was on bond for a felony gun case, the other was on parole for two carjackings. They've now been charged with robbing and carjacking in Beverly. One was on bond for a felony gun case, the other, because we're serious about gun crime. Yeah. Yeah. The other on parole for two carjackings because we're serious about removing repeat violent offenders from the streets of Chicago. In my neighborhood, not, not last night, the night before, I, you know, I thought we had three carjackings. I was wrong. We had tw- 12. 12 total armed robbery and carjackings by the same group of people within a matter of 30 minutes. And they even boxed people in, so in front of Merkel's on Clark there right by Wrigley. These two chicks were parking their car, and they one guy came from behind the other side. They boxed them in. They beat up the passenger, took her belongings, and then took off with the car. And they did that again and again and again and again within a matter of 30 minutes. They're very, very swift, very successful. Uh, you know what's funny um, is getting into these arguments about uh, the incidents of violent crime in Chicago with these uh, mindless trolls who want to cherry-pick statistics to suggest that uh, uh, it's just big city living. I mean, these are just anecdotes uh, about living in the big city. It happens everywhere. Uh, Crime's going down because murders and shootings are slightly down year over year. If you look historically at other terrible periods in the history of Chicago, we've been here before. I I love the rationalizations that this is supposed to be just sort of accepted as— attendant to living in the city and because we've had previous periods 
of runaway violent crime that it somehow excuses this period of runaway violent crime. This despite the fact, again, if just if you want to do these comparisons, which we've done for years, that Chicago has more shootings and murders than L.A. and New York combined, despite having about one fourth of the total population of those two cities combined. But, you know, hey, whatever uh, helps you sleep at night, whatever helps you rationalize your support for the men and women of always from the party of always with the policies of always in Chicago, whatever works, those bad those previous bad periods. uh, Well, who was in charge then? Conservative conservatives? I, I don't think so. Oh, and, and then there were dips. So it's just cyclical and we're just cosmic putty in the hands of inexorable fate. This is just things just go up and down. There's no rhyme or reason for them. it has nothing to do with the people in office. It has nothing to do with the policies the electorate supports. It's just, you know, the vagaries of the human condition. And some years you're going to have. 850 murders and some years you're going to have 650 murders and it just moves like the mm-hmm. Dow Jones and you just you just you just you just accept this you know it's too it's terrible what happened to that flight attendant well you know it happens gosh thank god it wasn't someone i care about uh it's terrible what happened to that northern trust employee eh you know yeah uh, i know it's just but, you know, that just happens. I, I, you just throw up your hands. I, what are we supposed to do? Uh, the moment we hire more police or, or hire less police or put more security cameras in or, or hire more police but don't put security cameras in. Or, the, the conversation about all of this barbarism, this depravity, is almost as depraved as the actual physical violence. Yeah. And the reason why they were able on the Michigan Avenue attack to get this monster so quickly is because they have those cop cars set up 24 7 on the medians of michigan avenue so they were able to arrest them right away but they uh, weren't able to prevent it the cop, the cop there with the lights on didn't stop this crazy monster from well, killing well, cop, her or hurting well, her the, the, so me. that's not that's not on the cops no i know but i'm saying that it, it their cop. presence isn't scaring anybody anymore just like well, news, it, news cameras used to you know keep off bad guys it, that's not working anymore cops never prevented crime and they don't still that's not what that's not what prevents crime and I, I don't know why people cling to these uh, saws of your police respond after a crime has been committed and their job is to hold the person responsible true but i i this was is, under the impression I, that a cop car is standing like yeah, yeah, presence. I, I, I get it, but, but, but presence, you can't be everywhere. That's the whole point. Well, yeah. And this is the fallacy that people live their lives under, so many in Chicago. Oh, more police presence, more police presence. You could institute martial law and still police aren't going to be everywhere because people don't want to be held responsible for their own personal protection, but you will be. I don't want to confront that reality. Well, do so or fail to do so at your own peril. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Uh, I have um, some research that's um, particularly useful for Chicago, uh, and it suggests the futility of um, these conversations, which I've sort of already internalized 
uh, from our friends at the University of Bath across the pond. The abstract of their research. Um, it's a puzzle why humans tend toward unrealistic optimism as it can lead to excessively risky behavior and a failure to take precautionary action. So they looked at it. They looked at this unrealistic optimism. Um, think about it another way, the way that we talk about it here. The people that love to hear politicians tell them beautiful lies and then repeat it to each other and love to cling to those beautiful lies no matter what they experience no matter what they see, no matter how much evidence you present, I am sticking with the beautiful lies. You know why? You know why they do this? Because they're optimistic idiots with an emphasis on idiots. Our claim, the researchers, is that optimism bias is partly a consequence of low cognition. As measured by a broad range of cognitive skills, including memory, verbal fluency, fluid reasoning, and numerical reasoning. We operate, operationalize unrealistic optimism as the difference between a person's financial expectation in this experiment and the financial realization that follows. All else being equal, those on the highest cognitive ability experience a 22 increase in probability of realism and a 35% reduction in optimism compared with those lowest on cognitive ability. This suggests that the negative consequences of an excessively optimistic mindset may be, in part, a side product of the true driver, low cognitive ability. The people who believe the beautiful lies are idiots, and it turns out that they're at least a plurality, if not a majority, of Chicago's electorate. So therein lies your problem. Angelo in Racine, Wisconsin. Yeah, uh, you know, I grew up... <clears throat> Northwest side, Hutchinson, Pulaski. And I love the city. I still got family there. But get paranoid every time I go down there now. But the biggest thing is, you know, we hear about these, these, these crimes like this lady on Michigan Avenue. But nobody brings up what the common denominator is. They're afraid to because it's race-related. You know, I mean, until you point out and somebody says it out loud, I know the governor won't say it. The mayor definitely won't say it. And it's blacks committing these crimes. Then you have to ask, you have to acknowledge that and accept that and then ask why. Then they're going to tell you it's poverty, it's this, that, and the other. I grew up poor. I didn't do those things. The people I grew up with, we grew up poor. We didn't do these things. And so most that's got nothing to do with it. Right. And most, thanks for the call, Angela. And most black residents don't either. That's the other part of it, which I'm happy to say because it's true. We say things that are true here. And so it's real simple. I mean, most people who live in poverty don't commit violent crimes. That's a fact. That's, yep. So the, the um, issue is what do you do with those who do regardless of their race? And that's a conversation that, again, is um, beyond the cognitive ability of the plurality, if not the majority of Chicagoans. Phil, Northwest Side. Yeah, it's like Monday morning uh, football reports, you know. They all got one thing in common. It's all these Democrat judges and a Democrat mayor and a Democrat governor. And, you know, we keep selling $300 million a week worth of dope for 45 years, and it never stops. I'm not for legalization of dope, but, you know, something, if you, if you legalize the stuff, I hate to say it, 95% of these shootings will stop. 
Mm, even wow. the even yeah they will. No, yeah, I they think will. they're doing it because they're you bored too for sport. No, nah, it's nothing to do with bored. It, it has to do with money related. These kids are out all night. Listen to police scanners. You can listen to police scanners, and you can you can approach them armed when they're trying to rob your catalytic converters. They don't care. Oh, they no. they're that arrogant. They know they're not going to jail. They know they're going to get off. Nobody cares. I'm telling you. And when you go to these dope spots in Chicago, all over the place, and there's about one of them. When you go to there, they're making hundred, two hundred grand a day. They don't care. The cops, the cops are like secretaries in blue because their 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 arms are tied too. Thanks, hope- Phil. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM five sixty. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Well, when you turn school systems into totalitarian indoctrination centers... Then you send those people out into the world to politicize and by that I mean destroy the institutions they become a part of. That's what you see happening writ large, running through all the institutions in America, including the judiciary, which uh, perhaps we don't talk enough about, but certainly you're seeing it play out. I mean, I... The um, my opinion of the quality of interpretation of the law in our courts. That opinion is basically running at the same trajectory of my opinion of the FBI. How couldn't it when you see what the Department of Justice suborns? And I'm not just talking about Trump. How could it when you see what uh, courts at the state and local level, what they do in terms of adjudicating criminal cases, what they do in terms of policy proposals? Remember before the we had the Pritzker Purge Law, we had Tim Evans moving to eliminate cash bail in Cook County. Right. Especially had, for young offenders because, you know, their brain hasn't formed yet. Well, right. He wants a special court for 18 to 24-year-olds. 
And we see that with these judicial nominees um, from the Biden administration for a federal district court judge posts, uh, judgeships. And thankfully, because we have John Kennedy on the Senate Judiciary Committee, Thank God. we get uh, a real illustration of what I'm talking about. Well, because, again, it's running through the professional schools, too. It's not just K through 12. It's not just the campuses as it pertains to undergrads. It's the professional schools. Stanley Goldfarb has been writing about what's happening in med schools for the last half decade. We've seen what's happened at the law schools, the, the, the you know, reputedly best law schools like Stanford, where they can't tolerate a, a difference in legal philosophy with a sitting federal appellate court judge before it descends into name calling and crybabyism. Stanford. Victimization. And so th- this should come as no surprise. But as I want to say, it's always nice to produce the evidence to support the claim. Sarah Hill is a nominee that's been advanced by Mr. 10 percent, the big guy, President Biden. The Senate Judiciary Committee tweeted Sarah Hill is an accomplished litigator with deep ties to Oklahoma and significant courtroom experience. If confirmed, she'd be the first Native American woman to serve as a federal judge in Oklahoma. Well, there's the qualification. (laughs) Identitarian qualifications are what matter for the left. She's an accomplished litigator with deep ties to Oklahoma and significant courtroom experience. But yet? Uh, She's a litigator. Mm Mm-hmm. So John Kennedy has a simple question for this accomplished litigator that you would think a litigator might know. Simple question. I might know, but she doesn't know. John Kennedy's (laughs) simple questions for Biden federal district court judges. This needs to become a, 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 a recurring installment. A stay order and an injunction. A stay, a stay order would prohibit, um, sorry, an, an injunction would re- restrain the parties from taking action. A stay order, I'm not sure that I actually can, uh, can give you the. Okay. Yeah. Uh, she doesn't know what the difference between an injunction and a stay order is. Uh, some of our uh, barristers out there, I'll let you answer before. I do, unless, Amy, you want to give it a shot. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. Well, I'm not a lawyer, though. No, but you're, you're allowed to have knowledge that lawyers have. Okay. Do you know um, what it is? Do you know the difference? I think with the stay, if the court has to make a decision before the beginning of an appeal. And that's not looking on the Googles. No, no, mm-hmm. no. Nice, nice try, though. Well, you know, I, well, I didn't fine. get my JD like you did. Well, well I right, but you're, you're not a nominee for a federal district. Yeah, and thank God judgeship. I'm not. <laughs> I mean, that's that's sort of the point. I, I don't expect uh, you know regular people to know or particularly care, uh, but um, but I do expect a federal judge to know, especially yeah, one who is touted too. as an experienced, accomplished litigator. She's going to head to the federal bench, and she doesn't know the difference. That's kind of a, that, that should, you know. Raise some red flags, maybe just a little bit. 
We'll get back to that if anybody gives some people time to call in. Injunction versus a stay order. See who wants to be a federal judge. Um, since well, we've been let's talking... throw out the number real quick. 312-642-5600. Turnkey.pro. Answer line 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comma. You could text in what the difference is between a stay order and an injunction. Um, since we've been having to talk about death and destruction and mayhem the first hour of the show, I mean, I just want to have some fun. Thanks to John Kennedy's simple questions for Biden federal judicial nominees, because that's not the only installment. It's just the most recent one. Another uh, identitarian selection was a woman named Nasra Chowdhury. She was the first Muslim woman nominated to be a federal judge. Uh, John Kennedy had some questions for her um, about her views on police. That that would be interesting to know, federal judge. Does she have any particular views on police that may be concerning? This is a really simple question, Counselor. Do you believe that cops kill unarmed black men in America every single day? You said it at Princeton. Senator, I said it in my role as an advocate. Oh, okay. You didn't mean it. Senator, <laughs> I said it in my role as an advocate to make a rhetorical point. So, so when you say something that's, that's incorrect, it's okay to excuse it by saying, oh, I was being an advocate? What do you believe? Do you personally believe that cops kill unarmed black men every single day in America? Senator, I believe law enforcement have an important and challenging job in this country. That's not what you said, though, counsel. Senator, I say before you here today that I do believe law enforcement have a difficult and challenging job, and I also understand the difference I, I just between... think that's an extraordinary statement to make with no data to back up. No, none whatsoever. There's no basis for you saying that. And you knew it then and you know it now. How can someone possibly believe that you're going to be unbiased on the federal bench? Senator, I believe my record shows that I have worked collaboratively with law enforcement in Boston, Chicago, Mississippi, and Milwaukee to solve complex problems to promote constitutional, effective, and safe Your record shows that you believe cops are guilty until proven innocent. Your record shows that if a cop, if if a uh, cop shoots a criminal, it's the cop's fault. And if a criminal shoots a cop, it's the gun's fault. I've read your record. I've read your record, Ms. Murrow, and I don't appreciate you not answering the question straight up. I would respect you a lot more if you'd just tell us what you believe and not try to hide it. Uh, Nesra Chowdhury, Yale Law School. Nesra Chowdhury, former legal director for the ACLU of Illinois. Nesra Chowdhury, is in fact now a United States District Judge for the uh, Eastern District of New York, despite that exchange. These diversity hires are going really well. Yeah. I mean, she's clearly, clearly biased and doesn't even know the facts or doesn't even care to know about them. She's just pushing her agenda. Inspire confidence in the um, judicial branch, does it? How about another one? Uh, This is... um, Federal judicial nominee from the Biden administration, Charnel Jelkengren. Uh, John Kennedy has simple questions for her, too. Okay. 
Simple questions from John Kennedy, Biden, federal judicial nominees. See how you do here. Okay, let's see. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations uh, to all of you. Um, Judge, on the far end, uh, tell, tell me what Article 5 of the Constitution does. Article 5 is not coming to mind at the moment. Okay. How about Article 2? Neither is Article 2. Okay. Get a four. Article 4. Do you know what purposivism is? Had it for dinner last night. Um, in my 12 years as an assistant attorney general huh? and my nine years serving as a judge, I was not faced with that precise question. Um, we are the highest trial court in Washington state, so I'm frequently faced with um, issues that I'm not familiar with, and I thoroughly review the law, our research, and apply the law to the facts okay. presented to me. Well, you're going to be faced with it as a, if you're confirmed. I can assure you of that. Uh, anybody want to be a federal judge for the Eastern District of Washington? Uh, can you give me uh, the topic area that Article 5 covers? Constitution, founding document. Uh, how about Article 2? Uh, purposivism is a little bit more of a reach, but not really, not for somebody who wanted to be a federal district court judge. She's, by the way, her nomination is still pending. Okay. Uh, text messages coming in about, you know, what's the difference between a stay and an injunction? Yeah. Dan and Amy, injunction, junction, what's your function? Uh, okay. Uh, you <laughs> may be saying... nominated by Biden, <laughs> but you should not be a federal judge. Another okay. text message. Injunction stops a lower court, court action. A stay keeps it in force. Hmm? No. Okay. Well, they're, they're trying. So. No, it's fine. That's fine. Again, um, I, I doubt anybody texting is a nominee to the federal bench. <laughs> this, this is the best one. Dan and Amy. A stay order stops injunction to prohibit whatever. <laughs> uh, okay. But that's uh, why none of us are applying to be on the yeah, federal bench. I got I got a text from a lawyer okay. um, who will never be a federal judge for all kinds of other reasons, but he does have the correct answer. Okay, and it is? Do you want to hear it? Or does yes, anybody, wanna, anybody else want to guess? Well, I don't know. I, people are scared. Our phone lines are not packed. because. What about... Article 2, Article 5, these are a little easier. It's not technical. Okay, Article well, 2, could... Article 5, who's read the Constitution? <laughs> Who remembers anything they've read from the Constitution? Obviously, Biden federal judicial nominees don't. So, um, a um, to the, the answer to the question of injunction versus stay, a stay stops the proceeding, stops a legal proceeding. Okay. An injunction stops an action. That's the simple way to think about it. So, for example, the injunction, which, uh, to be fair, uh, the uh, Miss Hill, she had the injunction basically right. But the, the fact she doesn't know what a stay is or be able to distinguish the two is pretty jarring for a quote unquote accomplished litigator. Um, but injunction is like when uh, you had a uh, the jelly belly semi-auto sport rifle ban enjoined from enforcement pending. Uh, the case moving forward, and then ultimately the Seventh Circuit set aside that injunction. But, yeah, so injunction um, stops an action, 
stay stops a proceeding. An article to everybody should know that. I mean, you have to be American citizen and 35 years old to run for president. Yeah, it deals oh. with the, the executive branch. That's right. Okay. Uh, article 5. Anybody want to hazard a guess on mm. Article 5? We'll get to proposivism. Proposivism? I had that as a dessert last night. Um, no, this Rumptious. Is a, this is a different type of proposivism then. Um, and But the proposivism that's dessert, you should really have that with caramel sauce. I don't know if okay. you did. All right, well, think about Article 2 and Article 5. Well, you we've already disclosed Dude, Article 2. We disclosed. <laughs> Shit. It's, it's, it's news Don't to uh, Beth Biden nominee, but anyway. Yeah, spoiler alert. Here's Article 2. Uh, Mary Kay, Western Springs, you're on Chicago's Morning Oh, Oh, hi. Good morning, you guys. Um, I was thinking, like, um, like Vivek said, we should have a constitution test for all um, citizens before they could vote, I thought. Um, maybe these judges should take a test before they could be sworn in. You know, maybe they could sing the schoolhouse rock songs in their head to get some of the answers right. To get points. You know? Yeah, thanks for the call, Mary Kay. Not uh, a bad idea. Got a text message. Dan and Amy, a stay order is what I give my dog when I don't want him to run around. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> right. It's a yeah, ballpark. It's a better answer than you got from that federal... <laughs> Stick. Judicial nominee. Place. Uh, don't forget, Dan and Amy, the classic of all time. KJP could not define what a woman is. And well, she's a pre- Supreme Court justice. Yes, yeah, she's, she's right. That is, un- yes, it's unclear to her. That is true. <laughs> but we're doing simple questions from John Kennedy. Um, here's another one, too. Now, this is not in the context of a judicial nominee. But it's simple questions. For judicial nominees, and how about uh, senior level cabinet officials. So your deputy energy secretary, for example. John Kennedy asking Biden's deputy energy secretary, David Turk, about the $50 trillion uh, that the eco-supremacists want to spend to combat climate change. Simple question. Percent of global emissions yeah, but if right you could now. answer my question, if we spend $50 trillion to become carbon neutral in the United States of America by 2050, you're the Deputy Secretary of Energy. Give me your estimate of how much that is going to reduce world temperatures. So, so first of all, it's a net cost. Um, it's what uh, benefits <laughs> we're having from getting our act together and reducing all of those climate benefits. We're seeing Let me ask again. Maybe I'm, being, right now. maybe I'm not being clear. If we spent $50 trillion to become carbon neutral by 2050 in the United States of America, how, how much is that going to reduce world temperatures? This is a global problem. So we need to reduce our emissions and we need to do everything we can. How much, if we do our part, countries. is it going to reduce so world we're temperatures? So we're 13% of global emissions. You don't right know, now. do you? You don't know, do you? You can do the math. We need to You don't know, do you, Mr. Secretary? So we're 13% of if global If you know, emissions. why won't if you we tell went, me? If we went to zero, that would be 13%. You don't know, do you? You just want us to spend $50 trillion, <laughs> and you don't have the slightest idea whether it's going to reduce world temperatures. Now, I'm all for carbon neutrality. Uh, oh, he's a cl- I, I just love him. I just the how, what, what are betters and the experts with all the credentials, Yale Law School, Accomplished litigator, deputy energy secretary. These are people that know stuff. Right. Uh, by the way, Article 5. Yeah, let's go back to Article 5. Cause... 
Article 5 uh, deals with amending the Constitution. Constitution, right. Okay. Uh, you, I, mean, I, I would think that a federal judge would know that. Would know, you know, the basics of our founding documents. Well, have you don't have to. You don't have to recite the provisions verbatim, but you know the topic areas, like some familiarity with the Constitution. But why do you need familiarity with the Constitution when it's not really germane to your jurisprudence? Because, uh, sorry, we didn't cover the Constitution at Yale Law School. <laughs> and by the way, purposivism. It's yeah. not as complicated as it sounds. It's just basically uh, deals with the intent of uh, looking at the intent of lawmakers when you're assessing the implications, the interpretation of statutory law. What was the purpose? Anyway, again, something maybe you would have come across if you went to a law school that was interested in training future lawyers and judges. Yes, exactly. Rather than rather than activists like. Print like uh, like uh, our friend Nisret Chowdhury, who says things as an advocate that don't have to be true because she's advocating. <laughs> is is that uh, the standard uh, in her courtroom as well? Got a text message, Dan and Amy. Proposivism is the painful side of X from taking too much Viagra. <laughs> yes, and if it, if proposivism lasts for more than four hours, contact your doctor. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Hey, Dan, real quick, our general manager's here, and he said the word proposivism. What's it called? Proposivism. Proposivism is another reason why Dan Proft is single. Yes, true. Thank you. So many things, because I'm more consumed with proposivism than than any non-federal judicial nominee should be. Um, Fair point. Uh, Coming up, well, before we get to uh, BLM Brandon and uh, what you mentioned and what Mike Scott reported on this uh, master plan for migrants forthcoming. Um, Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, that's Mark Wayne, one name, two first names contained in one name, no hyphen, it's Mark Wayne. Mark Wayne. Actually, we didn't even Mullen, does he? He's just Mark Wayne. That's all you need to know. MMA fighter. Our parents had John Wayne, we've got Mark Wayne. (laughs) Uh, Mark Wayne uh, continued to... uh, defend his confrontation with Teamsters goon Sean O'Brien at that uh, Senate hearing the other day. He did so uh, yesterday on CNN. He's not backing down from Sean O'Brien. He's not backing down from Bernie Sanders. He's not backing down from CNN. Well, Abraham Lincoln challenged a guy to a sword fight. Um, you had you had a duel. You've seen the bloodstains on the, on the, on the steps in the Senator Capitol. Sumner. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that has to happen, but I'm saying that people like him, uh, this, this mob mentality teamster boss that wants to sit there and continue to do that because he thinks he can intimidate people, at some point that has to stop too because I, I'm not supposed to just sit there and absorb it. Mm-hmm. He needs to be called out for his actions. The fortunately thing is, is I'm capable of doing it. What about the people that can't? I can do something about it, and maybe I can stop him from doing it again. What are you supposed to do with bullies? Ignore them? 
or stand up to him. Well, and he's ask, a bully and I want to stand up to yeah. him. I've never bullied anybody in my life. I stood up to a lot of people. I've been bullied myself. I was born with a <laughs> with bad legs and had braces on my legs and had a super bad uh, speech impediment until I was in, in grade school. Um, I understand what bullying is. I learned how to do one thing because I couldn't argue with you and I couldn't run from you because I had bad legs at the time. I learned how to fight. I'm not saying that's the answer to, question, to every issue, but I did learn one thing. If you push back at a bully, typically they'll shut their mouth up. You know what Sean did? He didn't stand up. He had the fear of God in his eyes. And I guarantee he won't do that again to me. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. He's not saying that it has to come to duels, but he's not saying it doesn't either, which I appreciate. Um, no, I'm, of course, uh, his comments were, um, I think, uh, very well considered. I, I'm, I mean, uh, I, I'd be a hypocrite if I, since I've done something similar uh, to Twice. politicians, uh, that if I if I didn't support that, but but I, I do support it, and I think he has a point too, with respect to, um, with respect to people standing up for themselves and standing up to people who think that they can slime you under cover of social media, who think that, and then and then you do these uh, kind of showy events where uh, you pretend like. Uh, Oh, the, the, we're going to have substantive discussions because this is a substantive person. But the main thing, the main service he provided, Mark Wayne provided, is just pulling back the curtain. It's like, I'm not going to participate in this performance. I know who you are, and I know who you are based on your conduct. And so let's talk about your conduct, and then we can talk about public policy too. But I'm not going to pretend that you're a good faith actor representative of uh, the working men and women and the Teamsters. I'm going to tell people who you actually are. And um, in the process, uh, I'm going to stand up for myself and see if uh, who you say you are is really who you are when confronted with that challenge. I love it. I really do. And it's not because I'm promoting, you know, uh, bar fighting in the Senate, okay? But I think there's something to what uh, Mark Wayne had to say, even, you know, setting aside his uh, you know, personal story about, uh, I guess, being bullied and teased as a kid. I mean, you know, who, sure, who he wasn't? was if he had braces on his legs and he had a stutter. You know? But I mean, it's, yeah, but, but right. who was it? Who wasn't for some and reason? I was I mean, bullied. All, I, were you uh, bullied? I was. Everybody, everybody was bullied. I, I, I was made fun of. OK. Oh, I still am made fun of um, that. That's part of life. All this bullying, everything is bullying. Yeah, I was made fun of, and I stand up for myself. That's what you're taught. That's like the lifelong lesson. That's what we were all taught. Well, I stand say, up for yourself. Yeah, just let men be men. I mean, if those two want to fight, let them fight. Well, here's the thing, too. They didn't have I'm, to fight on the Senate floor. They could have taken. Well, they weren't on the Senate floor, but in the, in the hearing, they could have taken it outside. Well, that's what right. Ma, that's what Mark Wayne offered. Right. And he, I stand the, with him. Here's the thing, too, about this. The other thing he exposed, which I really appreciate. I said this yesterday, but let me put a fine point on it. I have no issue with the trade unionists, and most conservatives don't. Carpenters, plumbers, teamsters, electricians, operating engineers, stationary engineers, so on and so forth. Mostly decent people doing honorable work just like every other profession. But, here's the but. But the bosses of 
some of these unions, not all, some, some of the bosses of some of these unions, like this Sean O'Brien guy with their phony brotherhood rap, who get run by gender-fluid pronoun Stasi types and shout-your-abortion suburban offals while presenting as rough-and-tumble Johnny Lunchpails, they're insufferable. They're insufferable frauds. And O'Brien got exposed as one of those insufferable frauds. And for that reason, Mark Wayne did a service. Okay. Uh, I've had my say. Um, Speaking of... uh, getting pushed around and pushing back. BLM Brandon uh, apparently is uh, playing political hardball with uh, some of the alder humans. And uh, one alder human who has not exactly been a profile in courage, he's not somebody I've otherwise been complimentary of previously. This guy who, this, uh, you know, Carlisle group... Scion, who ran against Kim Fox, ran a really weak, tepid campaign against Kim Fox, the Democrat primary. Now he's a 34th Ward alderman. Conway. Yeah, Bill Conway. Um, He he came out. Rather than playing the game that the way that these Marxist goons want to play it, and they're so ham-handed about it, there's like no uh, finesse from these people. Of course there's not. No. And so you have to respond accordingly, and he has. Um, so Conway is pushing for some action to be taken with respect to the viaduct under the tracks at Clinton and Fulton in his district. Oh, yeah, we talked about that. It's disgusting. Right. It's a huge it's be- homeless encampment. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, one resident saying it started out as a couple of tents, and now it's uncontainable. Um, so Conway said he took those concerns to uh, BLM Brandon's henchmen. Jason and he, Lee. And he was told that uh, the conditions for solving these, this problem at Clinton and Fulton depended on his votes for raising the real estate transfer tax. I mean, and on. also the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the wage increase for tipped employees. Yeah, we'll both help of, you out. We'll clean up the mess, but you have to vote in favor of both of these issues. He didn't vote for either. Good. And as a result, the city's plan to remove some of the drug dealing that's going on in this tent city at Clinton and Fulton were scrapped. And now he's saying so publicly, which is the right thing to do. So, I mean, he didn't uh, challenge BLM Brandon to, you know, take it on the LaSalle Street and hash it out. He didn't have to. But this is another illustration of the same sort of thing. Expose people for what they're doing. I mean, is that the way that BLM Brandon is going to do it? I mean, you know, power politics is nothing new. But um, you can, you know, sort of exist under the thumb of uh, local despot, the, uh, the king of the feudal lords, or you can push back against the king and inform the public about how they operate, and that's what Conway has done by bring by going public with this, and that's a good thing. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six type in da then a quick comment. Yeah, Marion Ahern interviewed him and Jason Lee, and they just you know he said exactly like I'm not going to be pushed around. I'm here. We need to clean up this area, and I'm not going to vote for either of those issues. Came out and said that flat out, and Jason Lee's reasoning was just a bunch of gobbledygook. 
Well, of course, because he didn't knows expect, that he's wrong. <laughs> he got he caught. Didn't expe- he didn't expect it to be, you know, put to him. And yeah, but so is that so, the way they do business in Chicago always? Well, yeah, yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's uh, written in the stars that it always has to be that way, and everybody has to play along. Some people can say no. No is not something you hear very often in Chicago. Um, so that brings us to this uh, plan. That is, as per usual, ill-defined because this is seat of their pants kind of stuff. But this 60-day limit on shelter stays, that's the uh, new big idea coming from BLM Brandon for uh, dealing with the uh, migrants, dealing with, his word, the burden the burden, burden yes. of migrants. Well, Governor Pritzker is having a press conference at 10 a.m. to outline new procedures for migrants because I think that they know the Democrats, their base is turning on them on this issue. So now they're doing something. Don't mind the residents who have tents packed, you know, right or set up right in front of their houses. This is the issue. So now there's 60 day limit for migrants and city shelters, but it's a tier system. So if you prove, Dan, to them that you're looking for a job or trying to find housing, they'll let you stay a little longer. But the problem is we're running out of shelters. The problem is the tent cities, the one at 115th and Halstead will not be ready until June. The one at 38th in California, now they're doing environmental testing on it uh, to see if it's safe because there's been it's been an industrial site since 1938. So in the meantime, you have 1,800 people who are still waiting to get into shelters, and those are the people that are staying at the airport and that are staying at police stations and are staying in tents outside of police stations. Well, the, the, the other problem is the 60 days is just like an arbitrary right. Time, uh, arbitrary time period. It's like COVID, I mean, this, 10 days, the, 15 The days. Six, 60 days uh, to ease the transition to work and sustainability. Really? You think you're going to go from a tent to uh, a job with income where you can live independently without uh, city provisions in 60 days? You think 20,000 migrants or whatever the number is, is uh, that you think that's going to happen? Also, I there's heard, no way that's going to happen. Yeah, one of my sources told me too that they're also they're, Governor Pritzker is going to talk about a plan to t- bus people or take them to different towns that they may want to live in. So that sounds an awful lot like Eric Adams, who's willing to fly people anywhere, but in st- inside of New York, doesn't it? You know what else so- sounds like? It sounds like a lot, a lot Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis. Isn't that what Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis did? Yeah. You want to go to Chicago? Yes. Okay, we'll send you. You can go to anywhere but somewhere inside of the state because we're busting so, at the range. So when Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis do it, it's uh, kidnapping. It's human trafficking. When Eric Adams, Brandon Johnson, and J.B. Pritzker do it, it's being welcoming. And, and this is my favorite because you know how some buses just drop off people randomly at random times? Say, like, the Sears Tower. Remember that a few weeks ago uh, in the middle of the night? People just got dropped off there. They want to have certain times set up in certain locations to receive migrants. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know how hand, you're going to regulate that, but all right. A handful of black Chicagoans had a little uh, impromptu press conference outside the office of Fifth Ward Alderman Desmond Yancey, calling out that alderman and other aldermen and the mayor uh, over the issue of provisions for migrants versus provisions for Chicagoans. And they had a bill of particulars. Take a listen. Demand that the Alderman vote no on the budget that includes an additional $150 million or more, or any of amount, any amount of immigrants, because these are taxpayers' dollars. 
we demand a funded office of treatment for black descendants of American chattel slavery. We, su we support the candidacy of Republicans, Independents, and Democrats who oppose sanctuary cities. We support, we, we demand that you support Illinois African American for equitable redistricting map and standing committee for black student achievement. And we demand that the land grab of senior citizens' homes and to replace us with illegal immigrants. Those are our demands. And this is what we expect our elected officials to do. They are not representing us. They are representing everybody else but us. They're representing everybody else but us. Now, um, you know, I don't agree with everything on that uh, list of demands, but um, and it's just a handful of, of black residents. I'm not saying it's some sort of groundswell, but it is interesting to um, hear um, black residents articulating a version of the Great Replacement Theory. Did you catch that? It shows Democrat. You know, they demand Democrats to end sanctuary city policies. And they're threatening to vote Republican or independent. Uh, Hello. Chris, Chris and Carrie, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, guys. I want to know who's where they're getting these tents. Who's buying them for them? Who's selling them? And what company is it? Because I want to buy stock. It's going to skyrocket. <laughs> it's Garda World. Garda World. And I saw, Dan, I saw a Garda World truck. In Elk Grove yesterday. I'm going to just start snapping pictures of them. It's well, so Gar strange. Well, Garter World doesn't just do, you know, right. ten city base camps. That's a big operation. But, yeah, I mean. They had fancy vehicles, and then one looks intimidating. I, I just hope somebody at that uh, Pritzker press conference asks him if he can distinguish between his offer to send migrants to other places they may want to go from the same offer that Abbott and DeSantis made to migrants who came here and decided they wanted to come to Chicago. That'd be fascinating to hear that answer. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So you had this uh, Pentemkin village set up uh, to welcome the arrival of uh, Chinese communists, starting with President Xi. I mean, it's the least that California communists could do, a little bit of uh, mutual admiration since they're reading from the same Red Book. Um, but it uh, didn't go quite as well as uh, Governor Patrick Bateman and uh, Mayor London Breed wanted. Oh, it didn't. Czech TV journalist uh, Bashumal Vostal was capturing what he thought would be a majestic shot. San Francisco's iconic City Lights bookstore step, steeped in the gathering dusk. When three masked assailants approached Ooh. with guns pointed. Oh. They were heading at my cameraman, aiming a gun at his stomach, one at my head, he said in an interview. Um, the thieves grabbed $18,000 worth of equipment, including a camera, lights, and a tripod, jumped into a getaway car. As uh, the Czech journalist uh, futilely tried to memorize the license plate, they took my research, my time, my ideas. You know, that's why I'm angry. You know, hey, welcome to the party, uh, member of the Czech press corps. 
Um, you remember we talked about our friend Eli Steele. Eli Steele and his uh, his dad Shelby, the great mm-hmm. Steele family, doing a, a documentary work for their forthcoming documentary in San Francisco, and they got their car broken into and all their camera equipment stolen. This is just de rigueur for big city living. That's what we're told. Um, you know, I, and and, it, yeah. and again, I I can't think of San Francisco and everything that's going on, and uh, not also bring up the memory of Katie Steinle. Because Katie Steinle, who was killed by a person who shouldn't have been in this country, uh, really provided some focus for the Trump administration when it came to not only highlighting angel parents, parents who lost a family member because of someone in this country legally taking their life, um, but also the larger issue of border security, which continues, um, well, which uh, has reached new levels of chaos, obviously, under this administration after there was some regression to the mean uh, coming out of Obama and into Trump. I just thought Biden looked so weak, and they were just praising him and falling all over President Xi. I mean, listen to Governor Newsom. Okay, he's spitting in the face of Californians and business owners who have asked you know, for years to clean up the streets, but then he added something. Anytime you put on an event, by definition, you know, you, you have people over your house, you're going to clean up the house. Uh, you're going to make sure the kids, you know, make their beds. Yeah. I was just with President Xi. First thing he talked about was San Francisco. First thing he remembered was the Golden Gate Bridge when he was here in 1985. Should have seen the smile on his face. I mean, this this is universe. This place is beloved. And its best days are in front of it, not behind it. Oh, really? Exactly. And then... And then they took a moonlight stroll and made out. Yeah, yeah. And then a, a news crew got held up at gunpoint. Yeah, best days uh, are behind, you know, in front of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, for more on the momentous Biden she confab, we're pleased to be joined by Steve Moore, economist, Govzilla author. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, I just can't get that image of Xi and Gavin uh, <laughs> Newsom making out out of my. I think they made out. Well, jealous. You said he's a handsome man. Oh, Amy. Too soon. Too soon. Sorry. Um, but you so, know, I, we can. Yeah. I can top. You know that story about all the crime in uh, San Francisco and the filth in San Francisco. We can top that in Washington D.C. I don't know if you guys saw the story that the that the the um, carjackers tried to carjack the cars of the uh, Secret Service. <laughs> yes. Secret yeah. Service. Naomi. Guarding Biden's granddaughter, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, they she'll be those guys. If, if 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 anything, she she better you know make sure he's got his head on a swivel while he's in San Francisco. Don't get uh, too lost in the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, we look. We joke about this, but it really is a tragedy. I mean, have you guys been to San Francisco yes. lately? Yes, I was there a year and a half ago, and I will never ever go back. I saw things I don't oh, it's, see. It's, yeah, and it's much worse today than it was a year and a half ago. I mean, it is the ruination of one of America's, you know, greatest cities. And, you know, obviously people listening to the show can know what I'm talking about because, you know, the same thing is happening in a bit of, little bit more of a slow motion direction in the great city of Chicago. But you get these progressive, left-wing, anti-crime and, you know, anti-law enforcement mayors and city councils and, the, and these cities go to crap. And, you know, we had an item in our hotline the other day, guys, that you look at the five of the, you know, biggest blue cities in America. I think it was uh, New York, San Francisco, Minneapolis, Chicago, and I forget what the fifth one was. Every one of them has seen anywhere between a one-third and 50% reduction 
in what's called foot traffic in the downtown areas. Now, why does that matter? Because think of the impact that's having on the small businesses, the restaurants, the stores. You know, people aren't going into the cities. They can't buy things in the city. So it's just it's sad to see our great, you know, might, once mighty and beautiful cities being destroyed by progressive policies. And what's scary is that I think there's a good chance that Gavin Newsom could be the Democratic nominee. Is he going to do for the country, Amy, what he's done for San Francisco? That's why I wanted people to hear that soundbite, because it's such a slap in the face yeah. for Californians. And like, yep. he, he, because they've been begging him, please. Business owners who people are Look defecating in front of their store, and they're sick of yep. it. And then the one guy, he sprayed the homeless guy to get him out, and then he gets in trouble for doing that. And by the way, no you don't sense. you don't have a right to, you don't have a right to free speech anymore in San Francisco, but you do have a right to uh, defecate in front of you know in front of, on the street corners. And I mean, it's just it's so awful, and it's so easy to fix these things. I mean, no matter what people think of Rudy Giuliani and you know his behavior lately, what he did in New York uh, when he came in, he, you know that's why he became America's mayor. Is he turned that city around in two years? From yeah, but being, where did all those homeless you know, people go that they displaced? You know, and, and I can't wait. And people better be on this to see how soon it is yeah. till they come back to the spots that yeah. they were once in before the president's visit. Yeah, isn't that what the communists do? Like, if the foreign leaders come in, they they get rid of all the bad. <laughs> Don't let them see what's going on over here, and and that's exactly what's happening. in but by, by the way, the same things happening in Oakland. The same things happening in Sacramento. The same things happening in Los Angeles, although in a little bit you know, uh, milder pace, but I, it's sad because I love these great cities. I do. I'm a big fan of, of, you know, Chicago, but well, uh, I see uh, the same thing. Well, uh, Grigory Potemkin was a Russian military leader. Potem, that's the reference to the, <laughs> the city Potemkin that they set up. Yeah, right. That's a great uh, point, Dan. <laughs> um, so, so did, was there anything, I, I know there was the photo op and the, the, you know, we're going to come together to, uh, to ban yeah, the uh, distribution yeah, yeah. of the production and distribution of fentanyl. Is there anything that you gleaned from the reporting on the yeah. conversation from Biden and she that has any relevance yeah. to America's economic I vitality? Yes, I learned some very, very good news, really good news that President Xi is very serious about doing something about uh, uh, climate change. Yeah. OK. Oh, that's OK. Good. But <laughs> they right. said they're not. I mean, curbing fentanyl <laughs> production. Hey, what does that mean? Well, you know, I mean, this is the thing about the, the difference between, you know, uh, this is, you know, we believe in realism, what, what's really happening, and they, they believe in propaganda. And so, you know, there's only two people in the world who actually believe when President Xi says, oh, yes, we're going to reduce our carbon emissions. Uh, well, the first one is Joe Biden. The second one is John Kerry, who's the, uh, uh, you know, the climate czar. But by the way, you, you guys know this. I've said it many times on your show. They're building a new coal plant every three weeks in, um, in China. And so that doesn't sound like they're getting serious about fighting climate change. And John you know, Kerry was at the table uh, yesterday, uh, you know. Okay. You know, by the way, I think they should be, you know, I'm, I'm, I think, number one, there's a big movement, you know, to force China to pay, pay reparations for what they did with, with COVID, whether it was accidental or whether it's intentional, and everybody has different opinions about that. We now do know pretty definitively that this was released from these, um, you know, from these labs in, in, uh, in uh, Beijing. And they have to they have to pay for what they did to the world. And I don't know if that's hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars, but the you know, they covered it up. And that's number one. You know, number two, this is like, you know, hugging. 
This is like Neville Chamberlain in 1939. Uh, peace in our time, right? But um, there's there's no there's no indica- there's no indication that uh, uh, COVID compensation was part of the conversation. Oh, I'm sure it was not. Right. Yeah, <laughs> sure I just want to make that clear. Yeah, I they mean, didn't I talk I, about the spy balloon either. Yeah, um, you know, if you're if you're if you're trying to placate your enemy, um, then you're not going to bring up those kind of sticky subjects. I mean, like whether you like Donald Trump or not. And one thing I did like about Donald Trump was he stood toe to toe with President Xi, and he was the first one to call them out for the uh, you know tyrannical communist regime that they are, and. You know, you you have to be tough with these people. I, I don't care if they like us. I just want them to, to fear us and not to invade Taiwan. I mean, I think probably President Xi is going to go back. Uh, remember that old story about uh, Khrushchev? And he came back from his, uh, you know, uh, visit the U.S. and he said, we're going to bury them. You know, I think that's what President Xi is thinking right now. We're going to bury these people. We don't have, we don't have a serious president. Uh, speaking of totalitarian gambits, um, the FCC... Uh, we mentioned this uh, yesterday, uh, the, um, the, and this is not getting the attention it deserves, particularly given pronouncements yes. from Republican presidential candidates like Nikki Haley, who seem to be aligned to some extent. The, F- the, the Biden administration quietly, under the auspices of equity, moving to commandeer the Internet. Yep, yep. It's a big story. It is a big story. And what they're doing is that it's all uh, in the name of, um, you know, as you said, equity and anti-discrimination. So they're basically saying, OK, you want to build a cell tower or an Internet, you know, a reception area. Uh, it has to be we have to make sure that this, this area covers enough black people and Hispanic people and this kind of people and that kind of people. And, you know, <laughs> this is this is absurd. We want every look, we can we can have everyone with with Internet access in this country and the high speed. But to have the the job of the Federal Communications Commission is not to be some social welfare agency. Well, and the the implications that uh, moving in this direction would have with respect to freedom online that's that that's the the big question i mean in addition to the spend in addition to the the power grab what would the implication be because uh, it's not just about communication it's also about commerce yeah and and look i here's the thing this is a really important point that i think i mentioned this a few weeks ago but i, I want to say it again in the 1990s even under bill clinton who was a democrat but got, you know the republicans and the democrats got together and for once they did something right they said hey we got this new incredible technology we're going to, you know, we're going to just be, let it be the Wild West. We're going to make it regulation-free and lawsuit-free, and we're going to make it tax-free. And what happened? We, we, you know, the United States became the massive technological leader. We had the biggest spread of Internet access, you know, in the history of mankind in, in a very rapid period. And guess what? We did that about the government. So now the government's going to intervene and say, oh, we're going to make sure that everybody has Internet, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just get the government out of the way of the technology industry and the internet and we'll be fine. But I'm also worried about what this will mean for free speech on the internet. Um, speaking of Republicans and Democrats working together, what was your view on, uh, uh, essentially, yes, yeah, speaker Johnson doing what speaker McCarthy did, which is uh, uh, short term CRs to uh, move past any sort of budget showdown. Well, you know, look, I, I think this is about the best you're going to get. And there's nobody who wants to 
you know, take a chainsaw out of the budget more than I do. I mean, we're, we're borrowing $2 trillion a year. It's outrageous. We're bankrupting our country. Everyone knows it. And yet you've got to let, you know, again, you have to be any, a realist here. You've got the Republicans have a four or five seat majority of, out of 400, you know, 35 in the House, which is razor thin. And, and they don't have the Senate and they don't have the White House. And so this is probably the best that you're going to get. And what the Republicans have to do is just say, look, if you're if you think we're spending way too much money, which I bet, you know, 98 percent of the people listening to this show believe is true, then we need a new president. We, we have to get rid of this regime. And there's no way you're going to be able to bring the spending down as long as you have Joe Biden in the White House. But when we get Gavin Newsom there, that'll solve all the problems. Steve Moore, economist, Govzilla author. Thanks as always, Steve. Okay, guys, have a great day. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Amy, you know what that song is? I think it has something to do with our next guest and the show that he's on. Yeah, the, David Hidalgo's uh, theme music for uh, Mayans MC, which is a great... I mean, anybody who knows Science of Anarchy knows Mayans MC because it was a spin-off, right? spin-off and it was, it was excellent. Um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, both, both, I mean, both Sons and Mayans, they're basically like... Shakespearean tragedies set in a modern context. They're really, they're really well written and well acted. They're good shows if you haven't watched them. Um, before we get to our next guest, yesterday, this is dovetails nicely into uh, his book. Yesterday, there was a House Committee on Homeland Security hearing. Uh, chairman, uh, The chairman of that committee is Mark Green, Republican from Tennessee, and a retired Army major. And before the committee was FBI Director Christopher Wray and DHS Secretary Ali Mayorkas talking about border security in the context of national security and some of the pronouncements Wray has made in recent weeks about concerns that we have people on the terrorist watch list, we have uh, people that uh, are in this country that potentially may aim to do America harm, and we don't know exactly where they are. And there also seems to be some miscommunication or lack of communication, probably is more accurate, between FBI, DHS, and Congress, which was also part of the discussion. But Green focused on the 1.8 to 2 million gotaways. Jeez. From 160 uh, different countries, by the way. In, uh, that have occurred during this presidency and um, the implications the real number of gotaways is well over two million. Can the FBI guarantee the American people that known or suspected terrorists, including any from Hamas or other terror groups, are not amongst those gotaways? Well, certainly the, the group of people that you're talking about are a source of, of great concern for us. That's why we're aggressively using all 56 of our joint terrorism task forces. And there, but there's really no way for you to guarantee that Hamas isn't in those. Well, I, again, the, as you say, there's the unknown unknown and the known unknown. Right. Um, but what I can tell you is that our 56 joint terrorism task forces are working their tails off 
to make sure that they suss out and identify potential terrorist suspects, whether they're on the watch list or not. I think greater fidelity about who's coming in this country and how they're getting in uh, is essential to yeah. making sure we protect Americans from, from all sorts of threats, including a potential terrorist attack. Yeah, I, do I too. can tell you that the threats that come from the other side of the border uh, are very much consuming all 56 of our field offices, not just in the border states. Uh, that's why I made the point. For sure, I, I, I agree. What, if I heard you correctly, what you just said is not every state in the country is a border state now. Is that what you just said? Well, I didn't. I mean, the threats to every that state. way, but the threats that come from the other side of the border are affecting every state. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah every state's a border state. Uh, Vincent Vargas served in Iraq and Afghanistan with the U.S. Army 2nd Battalion and 75th Ranger Regiment. He later served with Border Patrol and, of course, starred in the FX series Mayans MC as Gilly. Vincent Vargas, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. I, I'm excited to be here. Oh, sorry, we're excited uh, to have you here, too. Sorry uh, ATF uh, killed you in the Mayans. Sorry about that. And your spoiler <laughs> alert. Hello. Uh, 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 so, you know, the so and but by the way, I, I failed to mention the, the bury the lead here. Uh, he's got a new book called Borderline Defending the Home Front. And I, I, w- I want to talk about that and in, in your experience before you got into the entertainment industry, because it seemed to me from what I've read about you that actually uh, some of your experience in law enforcement, uh, and, and certainly serving in the military, informed the character you played in Mayans. Yeah, that is correct. You know, Elgin, an incredible mind, he asked me to kind of write up some of my own personal stories. I am an avid writer myself. My goal is to be a writer in Hollywood. And I just showed him my story. He's like, you mind us using this for Gilly? And I said, not at all. So they tweaked it. They, you know, they changed it around a little bit, but the essence of Gilly was probably more of the essence of some of the, the harder things I've dealt with in life. Such as what, can you give us some examples? Yeah. You know, uh, Gilly character struggled with post-traumatic stress due to some things that happened overseas. Uh, and that is no different than me personally in real life struggle with post-traumatic stress from stuff that happened overseas. And so some of the dialogue that you see in the film or in the TV show was genuine to my real story. And, and um, you know, yours is a complicated story, a lot of uh, which is not unlike a lot of Americans. I mean, you had a grandma who came to the U.S. as as uh, an illegal immigrant. Um, and so that informs, uh, I suspect, your empathy for those who want to come to this country to build a better life. But at the same time, you have this experience serving in law enforcement, including at the border. And there's a recognition that we have to do things in a sensible way, as uh, as former acting uh, ICE director Tom Homan likes to say, uh, safe borders save lives. So yes to those who are fleeing persecution and yes to the legal process to bring people into this country who want to come and build a better life. But there has to be a process that's sensible and fair to do it. Absolutely. I think, you know, the argument is very divisive and, 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 you know, everyone's very emotional on the topic. But my goal in writing this book is to really explain the foundation of the Border Patrol career field. So then at least they understand that part of this kind of puzzle. Uh, You know, there's homeland security and immigration both have to be answered simultaneously at the same time. Right. And so. Some people argue the Homeland Security, but they forget to argue for the immigration side of it. Some talk about open borders, but forget about Homeland Security. And so the answer for these conversations are usually in the middle. We have to have really strong 
Homeland Security policy has been. We also have to have uh, a good immigration policy that, that still allows people to come into this country, still allows people to seek asylum, but that doesn't mean allow everyone to come into this country and then just release into the nation, right? That's a danger. That means your dial is too far left where you're not allowing the focus of Homeland Security to continue. And so we definitely are facing some strange times here where we can't identify who has come into this country and those outliers who want to, you know, do harm to this country. And why do you think the Democrats are letting thousands of people in? Because yesterday the Speaker of the House, or two days ago, said, you're doing this to get votes, to build up your Democratic base. Do you believe that? No, you know, I, I try to stay out of the pol- political argument because part of the reason for writing this book is we need to educate to really explain the process. As of now, I, what we have is a policy that's put in place that doesn't create deterrence. It actually feels more like an easy way to circumvent our system by processing them and then giving a notice to appear and release into the nation. So politically, left, right, doesn't matter. That situation right there does not work. It hasn't worked, and we, we are identifying what that can create is open. It's essentially opening us up to potential attacks. And so in that sense, that policy currently is, is what's hurting us. If you talk to... If, if you I'll just real quick where Trump's policies had repercussions for entering illegally, but also so did by, uh, so did Obama's. And so it's just this very strange time now that the, there isn't uh, a repercussion for entering illegally. Um, give us uh, uh, some perspective, uh, an overview of your time uh, serving in Border Patrol. Yeah, I was a board agent from 2009 to 2015. I was a regular agent for two years in the Del Rio sector, and then I went into the Special Operations Department. I was a Borstar agent, which is a search, trauma, and rescue unit. Uh, I eventually became a TAC Med specialist attached to BORTAC. And so in my career, I've done, uh, you know, a handful, I would say hundreds would probably be around the right number of rescues, whether it be search and rescue, swift water rescue, uh, and search and rescue. Uh, and to, on top of that, being attached to, with the BORTAC uh, tactical team to disrupt uh, t- trafficking organizations, drug trafficking organizations. And, and how, I mean, give us a sense of sort of our resource allocation to uh, secure border, at least during, to, to securing the border, at least during your time there, versus the job that Border Patrol has to do. Are those... Uh, are those completely misaligned, or is it just a, a policy issue and we have the resources to secure the border if the policies were proper? Right. I think there's a misconception that maybe the border's not doing their part, but currently we still have we still have the the you know the fence, the wall. We still have cameras. We still have seismic meters. We still have strategically placed border patrol agents. The problem is that after the border patrol agents apprehend them, what is the policies after that? Are we detaining them? Are we housing them in uh, humanitarian households or, or housing? And then uh, how long are we holding them? Well, right now, it doesn't matter if the Border Patrol does their job. We still have to process the handoff to the next layer, which is ICE, and then ICE gets them to determine their housing, and then it goes to the immigration judge to make a determination of their case. And so if they're not going to get returned back to their country and they're here for a humanitarian, I put quote in the air, if they're saying – you know, I'm here for humanitarian reasons. Well, then the immigration judge makes that determination. But right now, that's taking close to five years for them to ever see the immigration judge. And the statistics are 3% ever come back. So it is 
currently a way to circumvent our whole system by just entering illegally because the process after detention or after apprehension is kind of broken. Now, you, you, book- you, you, you mentioned um, rescues, and uh, I'm sure there were also uh, confrontations that maybe attended to those rescues with coyotes and, and uh, personnel from drug cartels. I, 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 I want to focus on this a little bit, get you to focus on this a little bit, because the Border Patrol has often been maligned as, um, uh, you know, strictly law enforcement when uh, it, and, and, you know, n- narrowly defined rather than in the business of trying to protect people, protect America, the American people, but also protect people that are uh, migrating toward the border. Yeah. You know, the Border Patrol has the most complex job of any law enforcement out there. As much as you want to enforce, there's days where you're showing up and it's a humanitarian mission. There's days where you're doing medical interventions. There's days where you're doing crisis counseling for people who have lost their loved ones while attempting to come into America. And so you have to be able to see this very human issue and make a determination of how you're going to address it. No matter what, if someone comes up to me as a Border agent, they're going to be apprehended. But at that moment, do I need to implement medical interventions? Do I need to implement uh, any kind of crisis counseling? And, and this is like the complexities of this career. These agents are doing multiple jobs at once, and, and people don't understand that. They want to see the demonized version of them, what the media wants to tell you. But the truth is, this is a complex job. Majority of border agents are Hispanic themselves. And so this isn't this racist thing that people want to say. This is a very challenging complex issue that happens daily and so there's agents who are pulling bodies out of the water who are attempting to cross who have been manipulated in the first place by trafficking organizations saying this is the only way to do it mm-hmm. and so we're dealing with these boardrooms for 30-year careers have seen thousands of dead bodies come across it's not easy for a human to see these things day in and day out and not have struggles and troubles and then also on top of that having the media portray them as the bad guy well, in your book, you talked about successful water rescues. You guys are also lifeguards. I mean, how many people have you successfully rescued from the Rio Grande? No, I mean, countless. I mean, my, me, myself, has been around eight or nine. You know, this is, uh, and, you know, the hard ones are the ones you don't save. Yeah. You know, Del Rio sector alone last year uh, lost, hundred. I think it's 247 individuals, whether it be to drownings or to heat casualties because of the weathers. They get... They get told what to do, even if they can or can't swim. They have to do it at this moment. And then when there's an agent that sees them, the coyote leaves and leaves them hanging to fend for themselves. And it's us who either have to try and do our best to rescue them, save their lives, or walk up on a dead body. Do you uh, you stay in touch with guys that you served with? And, and if you do, what... Uh... What, if anything, do they share with you about their uh, about what they're experiencing uh, these days, what the, the challenges are? Yeah, I, I uh, still do consulting for the border and, 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 and I have close relationships with everyone still on the Border Patrol. Uh, you know, the morale has been low for a while because you have the higher ups who don't understand the mission and essentially kind of don't support what's happening. We 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 can tell they're overwhelmed and. These policies are not helping. And like I said, it doesn't help when the media portrays them as the bad guy. So morale has been a little low. It's a very challenging time right now for our border trade agents. I just wanted to write this book to hopefully 
show them that they have a voice and people do appreciate what they do day in and day out. They are the first line of defense against terrorist organizations trying to enter this country. They are the first line of defense against any kind of drugs entering this company, uh, this country. And as well as they save more lives than any organization in this nation, they should be held at a high regard. And um, I mean, just on a, a personal note, how'd you make the jump? How'd you make the jump from military and law enforcement to Hollywood? And me and my friends decided to produce a movie. And when I produced one movie, that was it. Uh, I wanted to try and use my mind and writing to try and create films in the future. And so I have a Cinderella story. My first audition ever was Mayans, and I landed it. <laughs> wow, I love it. You. I love it. You were, you, you were. I mean, Mayans was a great show. You were great in it. Uh, really enjoyed it. Vincent Vargas, he served our country in Iraq and Afghanistan with the Army 2nd Battalion, 75th Range Regiment, and also served uh, in Border Patrol. Uh, starting the FX series Mayans MC, which we've been discussing, the new book, Pick It Up, Borderline, Defending the Home Front, the book Borderline, Defending the Home Front. Vincent Vargas, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with the book, and we'll uh, continue to look forward to more projects from you coming out of Hollywood. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, we, as you know, spend a lot of time on this show talking about education from pre-K through post-secondary, and uh, got to say, I am uh, continue to be disappointed with the results. It doesn't seem like um, those who believe in a small-L liberal arts education and developing the character and intellect and reasoning skills of young people are winning the day beset by the politics of pre-K through post-secondary education, as we're seeing playing out in some spectacularly brutal fashion right now in so many respects, including including something we've mentioned quite a bit, the statewide report card on Illinois schools, which finds, what, 1.85 million kids in K-12 through and about one-quarter do math at grade level and one-third read at grade level, 1.85 million kids. Uh, those are death of civilization numbers, in my view. Why have school? Uh, well, yeah. And so uh, you have uh, sort of ongoing separation based on resources, which is why I'm such a proponent of school choice. And we have other models, too, that actually – are rather interesting and maybe should be replicated and scaled. We talked to Jeremy Mann, who founded the Field School on the west side of the city a few weeks back, where they're purposefully uh, economically integrating the school. So you have everybody pays something, but the tuition ranges from uh, a little bit to up to $20,000 for families that can afford that sort of private school tuition. And so you have professionals, uh, you know, uh, mom's a doctor, dad's an accountant, sending their, in, they live in Oak Park, sending their kids to the field school. And you have some families 
who are getting a lot of tuition assistance who live on the west side of the city and don't have college-educated parents at home and so forth that are also part of the field school. Um, maybe that's a model that should get more attention. To help us address the state of K-12 through and, by extension, post-secondary education, Pleased to be joined by Richard Kallenberg. He's an education housing policy consultant, non-resident scholar at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy. He's the author of the book Excluded, How Snob Zoning, Nimbyism, and Class Bias Build the Walls We Don't See. And uh, he's uh, written, recently penned a piece at his uh, uh, substack, The Liberal Patriot, Cultural Realism in K-12 through and Higher Education, which details all of the failings from a statistical perspective, which that's pretty easy to do. Uh, pointing the way forward is a little bit more difficult, and then charting that way forward, the most difficult of, of all. Richard Kellenberg, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. So, um, I mean, we've seen this play out even recently in um, elections. I mean, it was a big issue in Kentucky in the governor's race, uh, the impact that the school lockdowns had there and where uh, Kentucky kids, Kentucky families find the reading and math proficiency of their students, which is uh, not dissimilar to Illinois. And this is a story that repeats itself in big school systems around the country, including some in the suburbs. I know some suburbanites haven't come to that realization or are unwilling to confront it. But uh, the numbers in a lot of even uh, upper middle income suburbs are not great either. So, um, I think we've well documented how, how poorly things were going before COVID, how COVID school shutdowns exacerbated that poor performance. And so now what do we do? Yeah, well, well let me pick up on something you mentioned. I'm intrigued by the, the field school example of purposely trying to bring kids of different economic backgrounds together. That, that's one of the most powerful things. We can do an education. There was a you know, report uh, many, many years ago called the Coleman Report from came out of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And they looked across the country. Why do we have these achievement gaps? And the biggest predictor of academic achievement is the, the economic status of the family. The family is the number one predictor. The second biggest predictor is the uh, economic status of your your classmates. And so economically disadvantaged kids can do amazing things if, if given the right environment, uh, but they often end up in schools where everyone else is poor, and that is not a recipe for success. And so I think replicating what the field school is doing, consciously trying to bring children of different uh, economic backgrounds together you know, to learn from one another and to have that, that opportunity is, is an important uh, avenue forward. There are now 171 school districts and charter schools uh, that are pursuing this this policy. And in fact, years ago, I, I, I worked with the Chicago Public Schools on on those selective enrollment schools, uh, the ones that are you know you have to test into, yeah. and uh, help them design a, a program to try to try to make sure that the schools uh, gave an gave an equal shot to uh, to students who'd overcome obstacles as well as those who had a lot given to them in life. Did you help out with the tier program? So if you're a rich person, you live in tier four, then tier two, then tier one is say, you know, 
projects? I did. I, I did. And so, I mean, but but it seems to me, uh, even with the selective enrollment schools, and I know you in, you address in this in your piece the sort of uh, school choice versus um, versus not school choice, and you know, focusing on improving the the public school systems, the government school systems. Um, but it seems to me, and you you do mention this, that mobility is a big issue. So if you're relegated to the school where you live, you don't get the selective you don't get into the selective roma school and there are not scholarship opportunities uh to get you over to the field school then i mean aren't you sort of locked in we 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 have a lot of generations of families that are locked into the same schools that haven't really produced very good results for all of those generations yeah that's that's obviously not not optimal and uh you mentioned i've got a a new book out on on housing policy, and I think one of the biggest things we can do is to reduce the exclusionary zoning policies that that basically keep families stuck in in certain high poverty neighborhoods. You know, it's it's illegal to build a duplex or a triplex in large swaths of America. Seventy five percent of the land in most American cities and, and even more in the suburbs is, is for single family homes only. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working with conservatives on this issue at the American Enterprise Institute because they see it as an issue of liberty. You know, why is the government telling me what, what to do with my property, mm-hmm. uh, what I can do with my own property? And, uh, but I come at it from a, from a more progressive a liberal perspective and, and think, you know, in terms of opportunity for the students who are, are stuck in really uh, low-performing public schools that have uh, high poverty rates, uh, haven't been succeeding, that they need better opportunities too. And I think housing is, is one of the avenues to, to try to address that. But sir, with, with all due respect, and I say this because my kids, when we went through the selective enrollment process, when you were creating those tiers, why didn't you base it on a family's income? Because you'll have McMansions, and then you'll have Section 8 housing, and then you'll have just regular, you know, condos. So it, it just didn't make sense with why some kids that were in nicer neighborhoods because they wanted safer neighborhoods, but yet their family was below the medium income for the poverty level. Does that make yeah. sense? So no, I, I, no, I, I, I understand the criticism. Yeah. So th- there were... There were a couple of points. I mean, one was there was a question. If you look at individual family income, uh, I think there was a sense, this was you know, several years ago, this was back in 2008, 2009, that, uh, that those data weren't reliable, that, uh, that families would uh, not necessarily be truthful in uh, reporting whether their income levels. And so the address was something that was considered safer. But I've, I've worked with the Charlotte public school system on kind of a hybrid system to address the concern that you're raising, which is uh, you look at the neighborhood that a student comes from, but then also ask for information about the family income. And they put a, uh, you know, a more rigorous program in to try to detect fraud. And I think that's the best uh the best solution is to to look at both family income and and neighborhood, and then you can see the outliers. You know, okay, so this person's saying they're they're low income, but we know they live in this incredibly uh, wealthy 
section of town uh, that raises some red flags. Uh, but I, I take your point that it's, uh, you know, there, there are downsides to only looking at neighborhood. And that's why I think it makes sense to look at both both family and neighborhood. Well, and we, we also ha- have to look at what's going on inside the school. Um, so the curriculum wars, uh, and uh, as I said, there's a lot of suburban schools that aren't getting the job done in terms of basic skills either, uh, wealthier areas that aren't getting the job done. And uh, I know you come from a progressive perspective, but you also lodged some criticism in the direction of the 1619 Project uh, backed by uh, backed by the New York Times. Um so uh, detail that criticism. What was the problem with the 1619 Project from your perspective? Well, let, let me say a couple of things about that. One, one is, uh, you know, I've, I've read the, the book, uh, the 1619 Project book, and, and I learned a lot from it. There's some interesting things in there. Having said that, but the fundamental idea is that the true founding of the country was uh, in 1619 when enslaved people were brought to this country. Uh, and most Americans, myself included, would, would, would reject that, that view. Uh, you know, 1776 was the founding of this country, and it's what makes this country special and different. And the idea that, uh, that we, would, we would suggest that what America is about fundamentally is racism, I think, is is inaccurate. And uh, and how do you build a public school system around that that idea? I mean, how do you? I think the fundamentally the purpose of public education is to teach kids what it means to be an American, which is a uh, you know we have a dedication to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and uh, and that's that's a widely held view among liberals and conservatives, and we ought to focus on that rather than a divisive type of curriculum, which only highlights the warts in American history and not not the way in which, uh, you know, the genius of democracy is that slavery led to uh, an abolition movement, uh, that Jim Crow led to, uh, you know, because we have free speech, the right to assembly and all these freedoms, that that led to a civil rights movement. And and so we, we can't ignore the dark history, but also have to uh, balance that. And so that was my, my criticism of the 1619 Project. Uh, we focus so much on inputs. I mean, the debate is dominated by how much per pupil we're spending here versus there and so forth. Um, the outputs and uh, the not-so-soft-anymore bigotry of low expectations across the board in Chicago, we had uh, Chicago public school teachers failing the basic skills test at an alarming rate, so they got rid of the basic skills test. Uh, now we want to get rid of uh, all sorts of other testing, and, and again, that levels up to the, to uh, college, where you know more and more schools are dumping the ACT and SAT as well. What's your perspective on how to measure performance? Well, I think we do need uh, standardized assessments that will give us a sense kind of across different schools how, how students are doing, whether they're uh, learning the skills that we hope they, uh, they have in order to prepare them for life. So uh, we've seen a lot of great inflation in recent years, and there was a recent study which found, it, you know, it used to be that, that high school and, and uh, elementary school grades would track with test scores. 
They were, they were consistent. Uh, and now the grades have been going up and the test scores have been going down. So, so it's important to uh, be able to measure what we're doing. Uh, so I'm a proponent of making sure we have that knowledge. Uh, I think in some cases, the, uh, you know, there, there has been an over-reliance on, on testing. So, for example, in, when people apply to college, when students apply to college, I'd like to, you know, the university to consider the test scores, but also what obstacles a student has had to overcome in life because a certain ACT or SAT score would mean something different based on whether someone came from a, you know, a poor neighborhood, overcame all sorts of hurdles in life. Uh, so so I'm, I'm for the measurements, making sure we know how students are doing, but, but considering them uh, in, in, in context of, of life circumstances as well. Richard Kallenberg is Education and Housing Policy Consultant, non-resident scholar at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy, the author of the new book, Excluded, How Snob Zoning, NIMBYism, and Class Bias Build the Walls We Don't See. And you can also check out his piece, uh, Cultural Realism in K-12 through and Higher Education at the Liberal Patriot. Richard Kallenberg, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you having me very much. Thank you. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, Charles Barkley, uh, that's Sir Charles to you, Amy. Uh, He... uh, uh, he famously uh, said athletes aren't role models, but sometimes they are, actually. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they are. They're exceptions. Um, C.J. Stroud, the rookie QB for the Houston Texans out of Ohio State, another quarterback the Bears missed on, who's having an MVP. Forget rookie of the year. He's having an MVP season right now. Uh, yes, on uh, this past weekend's victory and how he stayed cool under pressure. This is what C.J. Stroud explained to the press about who he is. It's a lot of prayer, a lot of just um, knowing that, man, God wouldn't put anything on me that I can't handle. Um, and um, he, I don't deserve his grace and his mercy, um, but he still gives it to me, and I love him for that because, I mean, it's, nothing, it's not about me. It's about him um, and his glory. So um, I think that's where it comes from. I think God made me like that. I've been through a lot, not only in football, but um, things that uh, made me just kind of chill during uh, when everything's going crazy. Um, and I thank God for putting that on me because that's something that um, – put that in me, excuse me, um, because that's something that, that, that you need playing in this position is league. How about that? Uh, somebody reading from uh, that same playbook, or maybe C.J. Stroud is reading from his, is Jonathan Isaac. He is a power forward for the Orlando Magic. Nice win last night over the Bulls, by the way. Uh, he is also a husband, father, author, speaker, minister. He was the uh, lone NBA player in 2020 to not kneel for the national anthem amid league-wide demonstrations in support of Black Lives Matter. Uh, It uh, led him to write a bestseller entitled Why I Stand. He also was uh, uh, willing to push back against vaccine mandates and sort of just thoughtfully ask questions about what we understood as we were all going through uh, COVID as a nation and why the vaccine may or may not make sense for 
a young, healthy man like himself. He's asking questions. Uh, unfortunately, he chose not to be CDC director. He's going to stick with the NBA. Um, in addition to his game, he's also founded this company that we previewed when it became public over the summer. It's called Unitus, U-N-I-T-U-S, Unitus, and it's a sports apparel firm. And we're pleased to have Jonathan Isaac on the show to talk a little bit about all that. Jonathan Isaac, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So um, the, uh, the uh, inspiration for the sports apparel company. Uh, I think mainly it's just about creating an alternative. Um, you know, as I began to look out into just where our country is headed, where society is headed, I felt like we're, we're moving farther and farther away from godly values and principles and also constitutional values and principles. And so I just wanted to see my values, and I know millions of other values, you know, that people share uh, represented in the marketplace. And instead of waiting for other people to celebrate them, we can celebrate them ourselves. Are you getting any pushback from the league? Uh, not really. You know, I've 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 had my fair share of, you know, I would I would say negativity around around it, but it has completely been overshadowed by the positivity of people just understanding where I'm coming from. You know, getting behind us, helping us be successful early, and um, you know, my my mindset right now is just on continuing to expand. But I haven't gotten much pushback from the NBA. Um, you know, you know, we're a little sensitive about. Uh basketball shoes here because oh, yeah. we don't want to we don't want to take money out of michael jordan's pocket you know he, need, he needs he needs that money uh, jonathan <laughs> uh you know he's got golf courses he's building he's got all kinds of things going on so but um t- tell us the the uh the backstory on judah one the shoe the, the backstory for the judah one was really just the same thing you know back in 2020 uh, I got injured, and I was originally a Nike athlete, and I ended up not resigning with Nike. And then it turned into, okay, what do I do now? And I actually went to my pastor, and he told me I should create my own sneaker. And I was like, you're insane. But um, <laughs> we started we, we started to go down the road of what it would look like, and it kind of just grew. And the same thing was like, okay, why don't I use a sneaker to wear my values on the court? And so um, this is literally the first NBA caliber sneaker with a visible Bible verse on the outside. There are five colorways, and each one features a different Bible verse, um, you know, different ones that speak to me in my journey. You know, the, the one that comes out today at 4 p.m. is called Triumph, and it has 2 Corinthians 4 and 9 on it that says, uh, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And for me, that just speaks to my bout with injuries and coming back and just God continuing to be with me. And so the sneakers is just a, one way to underneath United to continue to represent our values in the marketplace. And, and now I can, you know, have that for young hoopers and athletes, you know, everybody who plays basketball saying, you know, I want to I want to wear my values while I'm on the court. So yeah, I, 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 got, well, I got I got a functional question about the judo ones because I, I just bought shoes, but I, I'm going to I'm going to buy one of these judo one pairs. But, you know, I, I used to play a basketball not oh, quite at your level oh not gosh, quite at your level go. not quite your level but 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 now i'm an old man make bennett's high school team okay um well that's <laughs> not true but um oh, but uh, uh but um the question now that i'm an old man is are they pickleball friendly because that's my new sport <laughs> you know i i would say so um they're definitely a basketball sneaker like i'm, I'm literally wearing them as we play you know i, I wore them Last night, as we, you know, like you said, we, we, we beat Chicago when we got, we got them again tomorrow. Um, 
but yeah, I'm, I'm literally wearing them on the court. You know, we have a few other NBA players wearing them. Um, I, I would think they would they would hang hang up uh, with pickleball. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, good. So they Thank could be goodness. court shoes, and you know. So, how do you make a shoe that you know represents your values without compromising style or performance? Were you in on the process of the actual making of the shoe? One hundred percent. Yeah, no, from from the beginning. Um, and so that that was the that was the daunting task for me because it was like, hey, you know, I have this idea. I want to create sneakers that represent my values. But the e- the easiest thing to do is create a bad shoe and just slap a Bible verse on it and say, hey, you know, it has my values. Everybody go buy it. Um, but I wanted it to be a performance based and also very stylish. That's something that people want to wear. And so what I did was it was kind of unconventional, but I saw it in a movie. And so I'm in Orlando. I went over to the UCF um, School of Design, you know, their, 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 uh, their school there. And we actually turned it into an assignment for the students um, to have to come up with uh, different looks. And we ended up hiring five of them um, after they showed their portfolios and their first kind of iteration of the shoe. And uh, we were able to work with them. And that's how the, the first prototype look of the Judah one was born. And we just ran from it from there. But um, I'm so glad with the way that it turned out. And I think we nailed it with that balance of values, performance, performance and style. Okay, we're getting right. slammed right now with text messages. How can we order the shoes? Where can we buy them? Oh, awesome. I appreciate that. Uh, you can head to weareunitus.com, weareunitus.com. And right when you get on the site, you should see uh, that the, sh- the first colorway will drop at 4 p.m., you can just sign up to make sure you don't miss it and, you know, stay tuned. Yeah, I'm already signed up. Um, but here, a question for you. I mean, I don't want to get you in trouble, but UCF, is a, your alma mater, Florida State, are they upset with you that you went to UCF for, to get the design done and not to not to Florida State? <laughs> no, they're not upset. UCF is literally just right there. It's 20 minutes away. <laughs> I would have to fly to Tallahassee to do that, no. Um, and so um, th- you, you mentioned, you know, you've had your share of negativity uh, over the years, uh, over the last couple of few years in, in the NBA. I mean, sort of the same question that uh, C.J. Stroud was asked. How do you stay cool under the heat? He was talking about uh, the pre- the game pressure, but the pressure to, you know, be the only guy who didn't kneel for the anthem in the NBA. I, 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 I suppose maybe uh, some uh, players and some teammates and other players in the NBA said, uh, hey, Jonathan, what's what's your problem? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I would say two things. I, th- I think the first off, and he said it so perfectly with that, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about him. It's about God. And what I try my best to do in, in all of these moments where people say, oh, why do you have to take a stand? Why do you have to go against the grain? I try my best to move myself out of the way and say, you know what? I believe that this is what God is calling me to do. And I'm willing to lose, you know, I hadn't signed my, my contract extension at the time when I decided to stand in the bubble. So, you know, my, my career was up for jeopardy. You know, it had went in a different way. And so um, I was willing to say, you know what, God, I don't care about money. I don't care about what people think about me. I knew I was going to be name called. I knew I was going to be maligned. Um, but I said, I believe that this is the right, this offering Christ as a solution to the problems that we see in our society is the right thing to do. Kneeling won't change anything. Wearing a T-shirt won't change anything. And I think we've seen that it hasn't changed anything. And so um, that's where I was. And same thing with COVID. I, I believe that this is the right thing for me to do. This is what God is calling me to do, and I'm going to stand on it. And I think the second thing is the people that I have around me. You know, I talked about how I went to my pastor when it came to the shoe. Mm-hmm. 
I've gone to him extensively for everything. Um, and I was actually on the phone with him the night before I stood, and he said to me, Jonathan, you can't stand for God and God not stand for you. And that has been something that is, you know, I've continued to, to live by. My wife, my family, my church family, they've always been there for me, encouraging me to stand up for what God has called me to do. And I never feel like I'm doing something alone. Is that is that uh, helped you get past maybe some of the skepticism initially that what you were doing is not making a political statement, but rather, um, you know, living your faith beliefs and you know, and that that's what all of this is about. Or, you know, maybe some people are skeptical in the beginning and they're like, oh, no, I, I get where Jonathan's coming from and I may not agree with him, but I I get where he's coming from. One hundred percent. And and I, I've grown as an individual as well when it comes to you know, talking about politics and talking about all these different things. What I want, you know, everybody to be able to do is to be authentically themselves. And if you stand for these values, I want you to have the confidence and pride to say, you know what, these are the values that I stand for. Um, I can lead with grace and love, but I, I do need to stand up for what I believe in and let the cards fall where they may. We can agree to disagree. So I've definitely developed some callous um, and I, I probably it's because of that callous that I've been able to continue to create United, create the Judah one, because I'm like, you know what? I'm not necessarily afraid of what people think anymore. I want to give people, you know, lovers of God, lovers of country, a voice and a way to wear their values in a you know great, high quality, stylish way. Um, and I really feel like if we aren't creating alternatives for the future, when we do get to the point where they say, hey, if you don't believe this, if you don't uh, agree with that, you can't shop here. You can't do this. You can't go here. And so if there aren't alternatives like Unitas, um, like other radio stations, like other TV channels and things like that, the only answer is going to be to conform. So yeah, well said. Yeah. I, during COVID, you know, um, uh, uh, Kyrie Irving took a lot of heat also for his position on the vaccine. I wonder, did you have uh, uh, on the COVID specifically and that whole uh, situation. Did you have conversations with him or other NBA players that were sort of similarly disposed and asking the same reasonable questions and providing the same thoughtful pushback? I didn't, but um, me and Kyrie have always had a mutual respect for each other. Whenever we see each other, it's always um, you know great to see each other. I, you know, he continues to stand up for what he believes in, and I continue to do the same thing um, in my vow. But I didn't get to you know talk to him much at all. Uh, during that time well you were lucky because you could play at home games because you were in florida but he had to sit out home games in new york which was ridiculous exactly. so jonathan isaac power forward for the orlando magic i want to ask you one more question about um your relationship with god have you always had a special relationship with him or is this something that you grew into something that i definitely grew up into um i grew up in the church but for me it was always a traditional piece of my life it wasn't something that was like you know, a, a real fundamental understanding of who Jesus Christ was, that he died for my sins and that he wanted to have a relationship with me and wanted to have a tangible relationship with me. It was just about, you know, this is what we did as a family. It actually wasn't until I got into the NBA that um, that same pastor that I talk about, I met him on an elevator. And um, at the at that point in time, I was still searching. I was figuring myself out. I was, you know, one foot in the world, one foot in, you know, you know trying to understand who God was. And this random guy stops me at the elevator. We ended up living in the same building. And he said to me, I can tell you how to be great. And I said, how? And he said, you have to know Jesus. And from that moment, my life completely flipped upside down. I, you know, we can, It's a really long story, but I wrote about it 
extensively in my book, Why I Stand, and I would encourage anybody to check it out and get it on Amazon. But yeah, I, I go through the whole story of, you know, how, you know, God, you know, God orchestrated that moment and led me to, you know, truly accepting Christ as my Lord and Savior and um, getting me to where I am right now. All right. The Judah One drops today, by the way, if you go to the We Are Unitas, uh dot com website if there's also shorts and t-shirts and warm-ups and uh, all sort of all sorts of other sportswear that's going to be available we are unitus u-n-i-t-u-s dot com sign up for the judah one which drops this afternoon jonathan isaac power forward for the orlando magic uh, great to speak with you best of luck with uh, the unitus company and um thanks so much for your time appreciate it Thank you both. I really appreciate this. This helps us continue to grow and, 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 you know, be what we want to be out here in the world. So thank you so much. Thank you. God bless. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.